Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. This episode is number 21. This is another installment in this little series, taking a deeper look at agriculture and its relationship with rationing on the American home front. There's a very special group of people that I had never studied before and I'd never heard about them before in this aspect of agriculture and wartime rationing. And I have just been blown away in my research about them. And without these people, the home front food situation would have looked very different. The food for our troops would have looked very different. And that, of course, in turn would have affected our allies. So who were these people? These people were the veterinarians and also the Army Veterinary Corps. So we are going to be looking at these two amazing groups of people and how they helped protect our food on the home front and for our troops. And later on in the episode, we are actually going to have a very special guest joining us to talk more in depth about the Army Veterinary Corps. But first up, we are going to talk about the civilian veterinarians. There is a wonderful resource called the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, and their issues from wartime, especially 1942 to 1943, have some amazing ads from the Allied Laboratories Incorporated. And they had this series called What the Veterinary Profession Means to Mankind, and these are very heavy propaganda ads, (laughs) but they're fantastic. And so I will actually be reading from quite a few of these just because I think they explain very well what the veterinarians were doing for the civilian public and also for the war effort. Uh, One of the, the ads says, Due to the magnificent manner in which veterinarians are performing today, the V, which is emblazoned on the insignia of the veterinary profession, may well be regarded as a V for victory. And I really love that. It it is just kind of the tip of the iceberg with the um, the patriotism in these ads where the the veterinary symbol is the medical staff with also some wings and then a V for veterinary. And they are associating that with also victory. (laughs) And there are many more Vs to come. (laughs) There's also a phrase I've seen where they say that veterinarians are vital for victory. (laughs) And so... Um, they just love their alliterations, as we've explored in previous episodes. Just They just love those Vs. So um, this is just one example. But all joking aside, the veterinarian's role in agriculture really was vital during World War II. 
And these ads really laid that out. They explained very well what veterinarians were doing. In another ad, they say, Japan knows what America must realize, that a country's sources of nutrition constitute its first line of defense. In America, meat, eggs, and milk stand first among the energy sources on which civilians and soldiers alike rely. Anything which reduces their volume imperils our chances of victory. Therefore, any agency which protects our country's livestock is a mighty bulwark of national defense. The safeguarding of these resources has long been the responsibility of the veterinary profession. Through education in livestock sanitation and research into the cause and control of animal diseases, even more than by the treatment of stricken animals, our country's veterinarians have made America the safest place in the world in which to raise livestock, and they are pledged to keep it so. So this is talking about how important the role of veterinarians is in protecting livestock and the food of a country, especially when they are at war. And a phrase comes to mind, an army marches on its stomach. If an army doesn't have food, it does not march. So protecting the food of the army is essential. So one of the jobs that veterinarians did on the home front was to to keep livestock healthy and to protect them from diseases through vaccines. So they cured sick animals. This in turn helped keep livestock numbers up and meat prices down. And this is important in economic principles. Um, The more livestock you have in the market means that the meat prices can be kept low. And especially in wartime when, you know, meat is in high demand, this is really important. Another really important role that they had in part of this keeping livestock healthy was to control disease outbreaks. A few years ago, I remember there was an egg shortage because of a chicken sickness killing thousands of chickens. Um, And I remember in college, uh, there was some turkey farms nearby and there was, I think, a a sickness going around and so they were quarantining these turkey farms you could not go near them you couldn't step foot on their farm just for fear of spreading diseases you know to prevent these outbreaks and so I mean this is still a very important practice in raising livestock is you know preventing these and controlling disease outbreaks this is something that um you know, being in 4-H that we've learned about, you know, when we are getting our chickens tested or even going from, you know, a friend's farm to another farm, you know, just learning to, you know, spray your boots with a Clorox type solution just so we don't spread diseases. And I even had a chance to talk with my sister-in-law whose brother works for um, a big meat company. He's a veterinarian and he just, she was explaining to me the process that he goes through when he is, you know, going to check animals on different farms that he has to shower after each farm. And one day he had to shower like 12 times. And it's just a very tedious but very important process to go through in order to protect all these farms from diseases spreading. And this is something that they understood in wartime as well. Uh, One of these allied laboratory ads featured a story about an Iowa farmer stating that 
Had he tried to treat his own livestock, that state might have had a costly epizootic of anthrax in 1942 because he had the foresight to call a veterinarian who, through laboratory diagnosis, demonstrated the nature of the infection, that highly dangerous and devastating disease was prevented from spreading to neighboring farms. Only the common sense of an American farmer and the alertness of his veterinarian prevented it from making untold inroads on our meat supply at a time when the nation needs every ounce of food it can produce. A dramatic illustration of how the veterinary profession safeguards the nation's welfare. I think this story is an excellent example of what they were doing during wartime. And I really like what they say about the insight of this farmer about how he realized, you know, this is not something I can do by myself. Like, I need my vet and the vet's insight, like, okay, I need to check this out, check out this disease and realizing what it was and taking care of it in the proper way, you know, because a dangerous disease like that can spread quickly and it can really damage the food supply. And when your country's at war, that is the last thing you want. It was stories like this that made me realize like how much that I didn't know about agriculture. There's so many aspects of agriculture that I'm still learning about. And I was just really excited to learn about these veterinarians. So super cool story. In another one of these Allied Laboratories ads, it talks about keeping animals healthy. It says, asserting that keep them healthy as applied to livestock is as vital to winning the war as keep them flying. The Department of Agriculture's 1942 yearbook states, Few persons not engaged in the livestock business realize the number, variety, and seriousness of the diseases and parasites that attack domestic animals or the care and skill necessary to keep them healthy. Few except those acquainted with public health problems realize how closely many animal diseases are associated with similar or identical diseases in human beings. There is some satisfaction in knowing that the United States is widely regarded as the safest country in the world in which to conduct stock raising. We have a well-developed veterinary service, and with the protection of quarantines and other safeguards, the United States is free from several animal diseases that cause great losses abroad. In war, as in peace, the veterinarian is vital to national welfare. I love these uh, patriotic things that they add in here, especially at the end, um, reminding people what the veterinarian is doing for the nation. And I think they bring up an interesting point in this one as well, that there are quite a few animal diseases that are closely related if not identical to human diseases and how important it was that those were really kept in check because the last thing you want is a different kind of pandemic or epidemic on your hands in wartime. (laughs) That's the last thing you want. I'd also like to add that veterinarians were working hard during this time to also help our allies. There was one story of a veterinarian that flew through a blizzard clutching a vial of a live vaccine to keep it warm in order to vaccinate British cows against the ravages of brucellosis. And that was in order to protect our allies' food supply. You know, diseases did not stand still for wartime, that's for sure. And it's really cool to know that veterinarians, you know, were helping each other to help out the British 
and to protect their food supply. And they their situation was far more dire, far, far more dire than ours. Okay, so moving on from diseases, um, what another job that veterinarians had was to inspect animals for shipment for disease. Ordinarily, um, only healthy animals were shipped on common carriers, like on cattle cars for trains. But there were special permits that allowed diseased cattle to be shipped for slaughter. And a veterinarian inspector uh, put a placard on the car uh, demanding that it be cleaned and uh, disinfected when they were unloaded. And then another veterinarian at the receiving end enforced strict obedience to this order. Another job that they had was more sanitation awareness at farms. Um, So just, you know, outreach and education for farmers to make sure that they knew about um, cleanliness and keeping their animals healthy in that way. They also helped by inspecting meat processing and packing facilities to ensure they were up to government standards. And I do believe this also included dairy as well. So inspecting those dairy bottling plants to make sure that the food was safe for human consumption and um, that the facilities were clean and maintaining those government standards that were in place for very good reasons. And this was very important because it was protecting the nation's food supply at a time when everyone needed to be healthy and hardworking at the war plants and at whatever war jobs they were doing. They also oversaw increasing animal and egg production to meet government demand. And we've talked about this in some past episodes about just how much more the government was demanding of farmers to increase, you know, dairy milk production and also egg production and meat production. So all of those things needed to be more, more, more. And uh, veterinarians helped farmers to do that. And... They helped farmers in ways like addressing issues like overcrowding and helping them with um, maintaining like healthy living conditions for animals so that increasing flock and herd sizes were doable. Veterinarians also served on U.S. Army procurement boards. So they kind of acted as consultants for the Army and in one of these lovely allied laboratory ads, um, they kind of give a vague description of what this means. Um, they say almost daily veterinary officials in key positions furnish the War Production Board, the Army, the Tariff Commission, and other federal agencies with information of strategic value. Not sure what that means. Um, Among other things, they have assisted not only in the allocation of crude supplies and finished products, but but in the allotment of precious shipping space for vital materials entering or leaving our ports. This reemphasizes the fact that in its trained veterinary personnel, America has a vast fund of specialized knowledge not duplicated by the resources of any other group. 
So kind of vague, but I do like that they point out that veterinarians had a very special skill set and they were very valued in in those skills. And and I like that they kind of at least spell out like some of the organizations that they were working with. So uh, it wasn't just on farms with farmers, but it was with other agencies like the Army, the Tariff Commission, and uh, other federal agencies, whatever those were. Um, I'm sure going if we did some deeper research, we could find out what these were. And one final quote from our dear Allied Laboratories. They say, in war and in peace... Veterinary science is essential to the production and conservation of food. And I couldn't agree more. I think when it comes to this part of our country's history, the role of veterinarians in the preservation and protection of our food supply just hasn't been talked about enough. And especially the role of the Army Veterinary Corps, uh, the role that they played in not only protecting the civilian food supply, but also that of the military, that's something that really needs to be acknowledged. And to do that, we have our special guest. To talk with us about the Army Veterinary Corps is Amy Gulick, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Gulick graduated from Texas A&M University in 2021. She got her undergraduate and master's degrees in animal science at Texas Tech University, Her graduate work was focused on brisket disease, which is a form of heart disease that affects cattle. Amy has recently relocated to her hometown to begin practicing companion and exotic animal medicine. She has been interested in World War II history since she was a young child and first read the American Girl books about Molly. She enjoys collecting antiques, especially kitchen items and vintage cookbooks. And I have to add a woman after my own heart. (laughs) So welcome, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you oh man I'm so excited to to be here it's <laughs> I've been a fan so. for a long time so this is uh. I told everyone I know <laughs> very excited thanks so much for joining me um so I was very excited when you first told me about the role the army veterinary corps played in protecting the food supply of the armed forces in world war ii and of civilians and so this fit perfectly into the season's discussions diving more into agriculture and its relation to food rationing i was wondering if you could tell us more about the specific jobs the army veterinary corps had on the home front when it came to getting food to the soldiers around the country yeah, absolutely. The The Army Veterinary Corps had really four primary roles. Um, their first role is probably the most obvious to everybody, and that's taking care of Army animals, um, dogs. And there were a lot of mules used in World War II, um, especially in the areas where guerrilla warfare was done and, and vehicles couldn't necessarily reach. And, and so the Army veterinarians would take care of them. That's kind of the most obvious. They also had a, a pretty big role in training enlisted men to be nurses or veterinary technicians for the animals. So a lot of these enlisted men had had an interest in veterinary medicine, but may have had no experience handling large animals. So handling cattle and horses and things like that. And so the veterinarians would train them in in how to handle these animals and and kind of triage. Um, They also had a huge role in, in research. Um, so especially in, in food production and, um, there were a lot of, 
a lot of advancements made in research uh, during the time period. But the fourth role, which I would say is was and is their primary role, was ensuring food safety. So, you know, the army was all over the world, stationed all over the world, and the places that they were in may not have had good quality water, good quality food. And so it was the army veterinarian's role was to ensure the health of animals both before slaughter and then take a look at the abattoirs and the slaughterhouses and make sure that proper hygiene practices were being followed so that the soldiers were able to eat food without getting sick. And I think that's something when it came to like when it comes to food rationing or just food processing in general, I don't think most people associate veterinarians with like food safety. Maybe I think of just like the USDA as just like, oh, these people that just check the food, make sure it's safe. But like, who are those people? Like, we don't think about who those people are, what their titles are. And, you know, veterinarians are the ones that do this work. And I think that's, you know, I think that's something people don't realize. Right. Absolutely. I mean, people may not know this, but every single piece of meat that you consume that's inspected by the USDA has been inspected by a veterinarian. <laughs> and um, I, and that's true today. And I don't think people realize that. And, and even in the 40s, the United States was considered top of the line in food safety. And that kind of changed sort of at the turn of the century um, based on a book called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. And it, it pointed out some of the, the serious issues in food hygiene and food safety and some major overhauls were made at that time. And, and kind of from that point forward, the U.S. became really on top of things in regards to, to food safety. And of course, um, traveling in the wars in World War I, but especially in World War II, they had a, a huge role in making sure that civilians and army m- members of the military were, were safe. Yeah, one of the so one of their jobs was to inspect the meat processing and the packing houses. Mm-hmm. And they inspected the meats, and this was a massive job, especially in wartime when meat was like the hugest commodity that the army was like getting for the soldiers. And uh one of the sources that you shared with me, um the veterinary service in wartime published by the Veterinary Magazine Corporation in 1942. It had a chapter that detailed the enormous task in front of them. So in 1942, it was estimated the Army would need 6 billion pounds of meat and for lend-lease agreements with the addition of the civilian population's needs. And it says, incidentally, it may be pointed out that the processing of this enormous quantity of food will be carried out under the supervision of the veterinary service. It will be inspected at purchase, at manufacture, at issue or shipment, and its wholesomeness and grade certified to by the service. And not a pound of it can be paid for by the government except upon the certification by a veterinary officer that it meets government contract specifications. And... It sounds super tedious, <laughs> but that's <laughs> six billion pounds had to be passed by, you know, a veterinarian <laughs> every single pound. <laughs> and that's just mind blowing to think all that meat that had to pass by those inspectors. 
um, just so that the army and the civilians could be safe and our lend lease, you know, our allies could be safe. So just crazy yeah, to think about. <laughs> it is. It's incredible that just the sheer, the sheer poundage of meat that, that they, that they had to, to inspect. It was definitely mm-hmm. a huge task. Yeah. So there was also a special army veterinary school called the Army School of Meat and Dairy Hygiene. Can you talk about the importance of this school? Yeah. So that school opened just around the time uh, of World War One in 1917. Uh, the name changed a few times, but but the school was the same. And kind of their their main purpose was consistency. So, you know, veterinarians, when you, when you graduate veterinary school, we all have a, a general understanding of, of what's okay and not okay for, for, for large animal safety as it translates and as it relates to food safety. But I think some veterinarians were a lot stricter than others about what would pass and what would not pass. And so the school was to ensure consistency among inspections and kind of what I, in reference to what I was talking about earlier, they also wanted to train enlisted men. So enlisted men who are interested in food safety and being technicians, uh, I think they were called food hygienists. They, they trained at that school as well. And uh, so in 1940, kind of before the war, I mean, the U.S. was really gearing up for involvement in the war in one way or another, even though we weren't officially involved. Um, and so they started adding some more specific training courses to the to the School of Meat and Dairy Hygiene. And some of those were refresher courses for veterinarians who had, hadn't graduated in a while, hadn't really thought about those things in a while. Um, some of those were some hygiene courses. And then there were some specialty training courses for uh, officers that wanted to specialize in one area or another. And it car- it it covered training over inspection of all different types of meats, you know, from eggs to sausages to really anything. And um, this, the, the, uh, the army veterinarians who trained at this school, not only were they overseeing military food, but they were also overseeing civilian restaurants, especially those that military personnel frequented a lot. <laughs> ah. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that aspect because <laughs> if they, I mean, when they were stateside, yeah, they were eating at the right. local restaurants. <laughs> right. Probably on a Saturday night with their sweetheart, they'd go have a yeah. nice meal out. And <laughs> so I think the the army veterinarians uh, wanted to make sure that that food was safe and nobody would be out of commission come Monday morning. Exactly. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> So uh, this has more to do with the Army Veterinary Corps overseas during the war, but there are a lot of interesting stories about them procuring safe food for the Army out in the field. I was wondering if you could tell us about any that have stood out to you. Yeah, there was a really interesting story, I think, really an anecdote about a an entrepreneur in Cairo, and he knew that the the army veterinarians were very strict about what food they would accept and the facilities that they would buy from and so this this Cairo dealer got he consulted with some veterinarians and found out what it was they were looking for and he actually built a chicken processing facility so the army would yeah. exclusively buy from him which was wow. very smart <laughs> so yeah so yeah he, he listened to to what they had to say and and built a facility that was just for them 
there's also a really great, and I really haven't been able to find out too much about her life. I really tried to to dig deep, but it's tough in the days before social media. You know, it, it's hard sometimes to find out about people. But the first woman um, commissioned to the Army Veterinary Corps was commissioned in 1945 and was Captain Thais Detienne. I believe she entered the Army as a lieutenant, but I believe when she left, she was a captain. And she actually came from a small animal background, and and she got involved in her time with the Army Veterinary Corps. She got involved with the research side of things, and she worked on dehydrated food products, and she she helped develop some dehydrated egg products, um, which is great for soldiers out in the field because they don't always have access to fresh foods or fresh eggs. And so that research, I think, really helped a lot of people. And yeah, so she came from small animals, came to the Army, worked in food safety. And when she left the Army, she worked in small animal medicine for the rest of her career. Oh, that's that's such a cool story. Yes. Girl power. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love those dehydrated (laughs) eggs. You know, I wonder if her work contributed to any of the dehydrated eggs we have today that people take on like camp outs and stuff. (laughs) Because people still use I'm that sure stuff. It, I'm sure it has. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it has. There was so much of a growth in technology and science during the war. And I think it probably has impacted us in a lot a lot of ways that we may not realize even today. Yeah, that's so cool. I was wondering if you had any final thoughts about the work of the Army Veterinary Corps and the importance of their role in World War II. Absolutely. I think... One of the most interesting things to me about the the Army Veterinary Corps during World War II was that, in my opinion, it was the greatest period of growth that the Army Veterinary Corps has ever seen. So Army vets go back all the way to the Revolutionary War. And there's a letter from George Washington to one of his colleagues writing about, hey, we need to get someone out here to take care of these horses' feet because there was horses coming up lame. And so they needed to put people in the Army during the Revolutionary War to take care of these horses because that was their vehicles. And in the Civil War, they made some advancements and they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to get people to take care of these animals in the field. And so they hired or they commissioned men who were intelligent, but not had no real science training or experience with animals. And uh, there was actually a huge outbreak of glanders, which is a really bad disease that affects horses in the Civil War. It cost a huge amount of money and horse lives. And I think after that point, they realized, okay, that's not enough either. Like we need to actually make a, a group of people who are actually trained in this area and have the specialty to be able to carry out these tasks. So during World War One, that's when the Army Veterinary Corps started to really get some steam and get some momentum behind it. And then come World War II, they really realized how important food safety was and how important it was to keep these soldiers going in the field. And, you know, to keep them going, you got to have food and you got to have safe food. And I think there was so much growth, not only in in the numbers of veterinarians who worked for the Army, but in the research that they did and the work that they did to keep soldiers and civilians safe. And so I think that's probably the most interesting thing to me. And in the flagship journal of veterinary medicine, which is the journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, JAVMA, there was a really great quote that I love, and this was right before uh, Pearl Harbor, so we still weren't officially involved in the war, but it said, the health and stamina of our people depend on the supply of these foods in amounts seldom realized. 
It is the duty of our profession to protect this supply by assuring its sanitary preparation for the market and by controlling those diseases threatening its existence, in which many instances are transmissible to human beings. So when you think about tuberculosis and and many diseases that can be transmitted from animals to people, we call those zoonotic diseases. Um, the army veterinarians were crucial, not only in ensuring the, the safety of the food, but the safety of the people. So I, I really think they made so many great strides in World War II, and I, I find it very inspiring. Yeah, I am so glad that we've been able to talk about this because it I think just the role of veterinarians, like you said, from the Revolutionary War and forward, and not just in working with animals, but in protecting our food supply, it's just, I think their work is really underappreciated in history. Like historians just don't talk about it. Like, why not? Right. <laughs> um, no one ever gives love to the veterinarians. No, <laughs> they should. I think, I think you hear like those heartwarming stories, like there's like the war horse story or the, about mm, those war yeah. dogs. Like you hear those really heart touching stories, but then, uh, you know, you don't hear about these other things, especially in regards to our food. And that's why I was just so thrilled to have you come as a guest, because we just needed to talk about this aspect of food that's kind of hidden, like that we don't think about. <laughs> And um, this has just been such a pleasure to talk about. Just really exciting. And I, I hope and I'm sure our listeners will have been excited to learn about this, too. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I've been thrilled to be here. It's been so much fun. Today's cookbook feature is Meat in the Meal for Health Defense, Compliments of the R. Binder Company. This was published in 1942 from the National Livestock and Meat Board. So are they biased toward meat? You bet they are. <laughs> Their introduction to this cookbook says... The right kind of food and enough of it for each day's needs should be our watchword. So important is proper diet to the health and welfare of America that the federal government has set up a national nutrition program as a vital part of the nation's defense efforts. Every homemaker can help in carrying out the program by seeing to it that her family has all the foods which are essential to health and vigor. The National Livestock and Meat Board presents this book of meat recipes to help make every meal more enjoyable and more nutritious. So they're making reference to this national nutrition program and they're saying this cookbook is going to help you follow this national nutrition program because these are some fabulous meat recipes. Now this cookbook is divided up by types of meat. So it's divided up by beef, veal, pork, lamb, sausages, and then specialties, which can you guess? is organ meats. <laughs> uh, they also have a really cool section in the middle called 30 Answers to the Leftover Question. And it's this big table of all these ideas for using up leftovers, which is pretty cool. Now, the neat thing with each section is that it has these meat recipes. And there's some really nice pictures in here as well. But then they've got these 
more economical recipes. So each section kind of calls them something different, but this one's called beef budget balancers. <laughs> that alliteration. And so it's just ways to stretch your meat. And then there's an even in the beef section, there's even accompaniments and extenders for variety and economy. So an even uh, more ways to stretch the meat. And then at the back of each section is a table, beef and what to serve with it. And it has it at the back of each section, at least for the main meats like beef, veal, pork, and lamb. And if you go to my blog, I will have images of these tables where you can see all the different meal ideas that they have, um, which are really cool to see. And I dare say give have given me some inspiration of things that I can serve um, using these different meats and different sides and even dessert ideas. So definitely check those out on my blog. Plus it's got a really cute, unique patriotic cover. So you'll definitely want to see that. All right, for my first recipe, I tried paprika schnitzel. And this is a veal recipe. And I did do some research about veal. And I will leave a link on my blog if you'd like to do more research as well. But I've only had veal one other time in my life. so But I, I've never actually cooked it myself. I had it at a restaurant. So this was my very first time cooking with veal. And this recipe was a little bit vague <laughs> because you take your one and a half pounds of veal steak and you just cut it up in little pieces. You season it with salt and pepper and you dredge it with flour and then you cook it in some lard. I just used some oil I had on hand and then you're supposed to add paprika until it's red. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> How much paprika is that? Um, so I added a lot <laughs> because... I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's bright red. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was spicy. Um, then you add three sliced onions and you fry those until they're transparent. Okay. No. See, and this is where I also misinterpreted the recipe. I was, I don't know what was up with me this day, but I just cooked the veal with the onions and then I thought I was done. No, no, no. <laughs> That's not it at all. You're just supposed to dredge the meat with flour and then set it aside. You don't even add the paprika to the meat. Um, you heat the lard. You add the paprika to the lard. Then you add the onions and cook them. Then you re-add the meat. <laughs> and I did not read it that way. So obviously, like, I, I think... By now, most people know I'm notorious for not reading through recipes all the way. I really don't know why I do this. But anyway, then I added a half cup of sour cream and then I cooked it until it was, it says to cook slowly for 30 minutes until tender, but veal is already really tender. So I don't think this is necessary. Maybe this is because our modern veal is more tender as opposed to 40s veal. I don't know. Anyway. I just cooked it until it was bubbly and warm. And yeah, it was actually quite delicious. But like I said, really spicy. I think I toned down the paprika next time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was nice. I don't know how German this is. <laughs> they call it schnitzel. Maybe because they cut it up. I don't know. <laughs> how did your um, recipe go? 
I thought it was really good. I made lamb stew with dumplings. So, you know, where I come from in the South, we take dumplings very, very seriously. And there's kind of the biscuity kind versus kind of the noodly kind. This was more of the biscuit kind. Okay. And so you cut your meat up into two inch pieces. You're supposed to use lamb shoulder. I went to every grocery store in town and I could not find lamb shoulder, but I did find lamb stew meat, which is probably shoulder because, you know, shoulder is a less tender cut of meat. So you would use that in a stew. And so it was already diced up into pieces for me, which was nice. And you're supposed to brown it in lard. I bought lard because it's not a bat that I use very often. And I was like, you know what? We're going, we're going full out. We're going to try this. (laughs) So, um, so you brown it in lard and you, you add water. Um, it said to add three cups of water. It was not enough water. I ended up doubling that because it was just so little water and it ended up being kind of like looked dry and not stew like. And so I ended up doubling the water. Um, but, and that worked really well for me. And so you cook the meat for two hours on low, which I did. Um, and then you chop up onion, carrot, and potatoes and add that. And you add that about like 45 minutes to an hour before the meat's done cooking. And then, you know, cook, stew it all together for the, the remainder remaining 45 minutes. And um, then about 15 minutes before it's done cooking, you add in the little dump, dumpling mixture. They're tomato dumplings, so you use tomato juice. So they were kind of a pink, pinkish orange color. Interesting. And I, I don't know that I could really taste the tomatoes strongly in the dumplings, but they were really cool color. They tasted really good. I was, I was very pleasantly surprised at how much they puffed up once I steamed them. They were kind of, you know, small little flowery balls, but they like really puffed up to really nice dumplings in just, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And it was really good stew. It was very hearty. So I I think a a small bowl goes a long way. I really liked it. That's great. I I think that's the great thing about lamb. It's just got a really rustic flavor. I wouldn't say gamey, kind of like venison is, you know, the gamey, but it's just the, it's just a different, it's definitely different than beef, (laughs) but I don't know. It's a very, I don't know, earthy flavor. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's perfect for stew. Oh, cool. I'm going to have to try this one. It it sounded really good. It was um, really good. I think it's the perfect fall recipe, you know, once it starts yeah. to get cold, which it was like 90 degrees out when I made this. But <laughs> if you wait till maybe it's like 60 degrees out, I think it would be perfect. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a trial run. So when, when for fall sure. arrives, you can, you can make it again. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> All right. So for my last recipe I made lamb pie with biscuit rings this sounded very interesting to me because I've never I was like what the heck is biscuit rings (laughs) Um, but they're exactly like what they say they're biscuits with a hole cut out in the middle and I was also thinking but why why would you do that (laughs) but this one has you know lamb onion um that you cook in some lard then What's really cool is you cook, You also add a can of vegetable soup. So that is the base of this pie. And I actually forgot to add the seasoning, which was a, t- a teaspoon of Worcestershire sauce, salt, and pepper. <laughs> so um, I think I was distracted by my kids, so I just forgot that column. 
Um, you should have brought some of the paprika from the first recipe. Yeah, I could have used that. Um, and uh, this this is one of those meals that w- is perfect for like a wartime mom or just anyone who just is tired at the end of the day because all you have to do really is brown the meat and the onions and then add the soup and some water and the seasonings and then you mix up these very interesting biscuits now these aren't just regular plain old biscuits these are pimento biscuit rings and pimentos are like the darling of the 1940s they loved pimentos so much and so you pretty much make a regular biscuit but you add chopped pimentos and parsley to this biscuit mix. And I was very excited because I haven't been able to use pimentos lately and I just really wanted to try it. And these are awesome biscuits. They're just have that really peppy flavor from the pimentos and they give the biscuits a really pretty color. You know, when I was cutting them out, like the rings, I thought, this is dumb. Why am I doing this? Why am I cutting these into a ring? But the 1940s strikes again. They are so clever. This is why. Because not only are by cutting out the center, they actually cook faster, but you're also giving yourself more dough to make more biscuits. And I was just like, what? (laughs) These people are so smart. And so it was actually kind of like a stretcher recipe. Like I can get more biscuits out of this recipe because I'm cutting the center out. (laughs) I don't know. I just, it's like a silly thing, but not really. I don't know. I think it was just very clever recipe. (laughs) So um, you put your little casserole in a dish and then you put your biscuits on top that are half baked as well. So they save you time in that way too. So you just warm it up, then you serve it, and you cook the extra biscuits on the side. And that's your little dish. And it was delicious. It was so easy. And it came together really fast. So this is a winner in my book. The lamb tastes very good. Although the only the only downside to this recipe is it sometimes it's hard to find a can of just plain vegetable soup. Um, they tend to come with alphabet letters. <laughs> so um, at least that's what my husband said. He went shopping and I picked out all the alphabet letters. Actually, my son did. He did part of them and I had to pick out the rest because I'm like, I'm not having letters in my wartime recipe. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it was still very delicious and I highly recommend this one. So I will have All of these recipes, including Amy's recipe and her picture of her delicious stew, on my blog for you to check out. For today's story highlight, Amy is going to be sharing a story about her grandmother during the war that involved animals. So my grandmother just passed away this this past May, the day that I graduated veterinary school. So I think this is a really fine opportunity to get to share a little bit of her with all of you and help her memories live on. She was born in 1932, so she was still a kid during the war. Her brother uh, was in the Navy. Her older brother was in the Navy, and she has memories of going around the oil fields and collecting up rubber um, to save that and ration that. And my grandma was a lifelong animal lover. 
wonder where I got it. <laughs> and <laughs> her her family had had a they lived out in the country. They would grow their own animals um, for their food. And my grandma would go around and name all of the animals and she'd get so attached. And then she'd kind of just tell the stories to her family about them and get all of her family attached. And she ended up being banned from the barn and being banned from naming the animals at the very least, because they got so attached that they're like, we can't eat this animal. (laughs) So, so she got banned from naming any further animals after that, because they had to have meat to, for the family. (laughs) It's like Charlotte's yeah. web. <laughs> exactly. I know. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, I am sorry that you lost your grandmother, but I think it's really a great opportunity. You can remember her in this way. And thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you or your family have American Homefront stories that you'd like to share, I would love to be able to share them on my podcast. To share your story, go to victorykitchenpodcast.com and click on share a home front story. We have lots of fun on Instagram, so come on over and give me a follow there. My handle is victorykitchenpodcast, and I would love your support, which helps keep this podcast going. To do so, go to anchor.fm slash victorykitchenpodcast and click on support. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.